if you've got a Bible with you, um, if you'd like to open it in Ezra, in chapter 4, and if you struggle with that, don't worry, we'll, we'll help you out with it in a minute. Um, before the summer began, we were looking at, we started looking at the book of Ezra, which is a book that um, very few Christians, I think, have ever read. Um, I'm not going to ask you to own up if you haven't. But we saw how God's people had been in exile in Babylon for a period of 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah beforehand. And we also saw how Isaiah had prophesied a couple of hundred years earlier that King Cyrus, the king of Persia, would set Israel free from their captivity in Babylon. Uh, and we saw how they were then set free from their captivity in Babylon. Uh, and in looking at that, we saw a number of things. We saw that God is doing something bigger than we see at the time. We saw that God is faithful to his word and his promises. We saw that God has his hand on the course of history uh, and on nations, something we need to bear in mind at the moment. And we saw that there is always hope. And we then looked at chapter 3, where worship was restored in Jerusalem, an offering was taken to begin the work of rebuilding the temple, and we saw how the older generation was disappointed in what they saw being rebuilt, while a younger generation rejoiced. And we thought about the importance and centrality of worship in our shared life as God's people, the vital importance of unity among God's people, uh, the place of rhythm in our worship of God, the way they restored a rhythm of worship. It wasn't just random acts of worship. And the differences between the generations and how each generation needs to respect and understand the others. Um, I won't go further into that now. If you want to listen to either of those or you missed them, uh, they are available on the church podcast feed, which you will find either on the top of the notices each week or on the church website. So, if you don't know... Oh, oh, oh well done. All right, sorry. That was a very rapid recap. Um, so, if you don't know where Ezra is... Do I need a clicker? Are you going to, oh, you're doing a great... I haven't got one. No, that's fine. You're doing a great job, Tim. So if you don't know where Ezra is in your Bibles, I think there's one more click will show us magically where it is. Well, not magically, by the power of technology, where it is. <laughs> so it's where that red line is in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, Ezra comes right near the end of the Old Testament narrative, uh, and it follows on quite neatly from where we left off in the book of Daniel a year or so ago. Uh, if we just have a quick look at the next slide, which shows us the Old Testament narrative. The bit we're looking at is the bit right at the end there. You see the bit that says Ezra, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, those blocks in the centre, at centre part, are the the main periods in the Old Testament story. That was a long recap, but it's been a long time since we looked at it. So, the people have returned to the land, and they've returned to and started building or rebuilding their towns and their villages. And under Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, they've reintroduced a rhythm of worship in Jerusalem and they've raised finance to begin the work of rebuilding the temple for which the foundations have been laid. So if you've got a Bible, let's look at Ezra chapter 4. 
you will also recall that I stopped putting the passage on the, on the screen before the summer. That's because I, I really believe that it is important that we do learn to find our ways around our Bibles um, and to use our own Bibles. So, I'm going to read Ezra chapter 4. There are some horrific names in here, so please go with me as I go through this. So, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were, re- were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon's king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabael, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, and administrators over the people from Persia, Uruk, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in Trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we're under obligation to the palace, and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we're sending this message to inform the king, so that the search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That's why this city was destroyed, And we inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you'll be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. So the king, Artaxerxes, sent this reply to Rehum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I ordered, sorry, I issued an order and a search was made. And it was found that this city does have a, or has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tributes and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order to these men to stop work. 
so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thank you. Uh, Amen. The secret, by the way, with those complicated names is just to sound confident. I have no idea whether I've got them right or not. But confidence and consistency, and you can get away with it. Get away with anything. Okay. Um, I'm going to just try and go through... The reason I was... This is slightly complicated, so please bear with me for a moment. If we could have the next slide. The... The historical and the literary context of this passage are at odds with one another. So verses 1 to 5 are talking about the reigns of Darius, or Cyrus and Darius. Uh, then verses 6 through to 23 are talking about Artaxerxes. Uh, and then verse 24 is going back to the reign of, of Darius. Are you with me? So it's, it, it has a funny arrangement of the text here. So the, the way the kings worked, well not the way they worked, the, li- the, the course of the kings were King Cyrus ruled from 559 to 530 BC and he, he defeated Babylon in 538. King Cambyses was king briefly, then Darius was king from 521 to 486. Uh, Xerxes was then king from 486 to 465 and Artaxerxes was king from 465 to 425. So we're covering a period there from about 538 down to 425. So it's not far short of 90 years that these people were facing opposition to what they were trying to build in Jerusalem. Um, We tend to think of this as a very short period of time. It's heading for 90 years. I can't do the maths in my head, but it's just under 90 years. Um, So... A lot of the chapter deals with this letter that were, or the letters that were sent during the reign of Xerxes and Artaxerxes, but then it ends up telling us in verse 24 about work stopping on the temple um, earlier on in the reign of Darius. Now, older commentaries do a great deal of messing around with the names of kings, uh, even inventing a second king, Darius, to try to make the whole passage fit into a modernist mind flow and work logically. Um, I don't think that's what the author is trying to do at all. Um, And I think it's a classic case of us trying to fit scripture into a 20th century Western mindset. Um, I think it does flow logically, but it's not a 20th century or 21st century sort of logic. What I believe that the writer is trying to do here is to stress the intensity, the scale and the duration of the opposition God's people faced in carrying out their mission. 80 years of opposition to what they were seeking to do, to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. Verses 6 to 23 then describe later opposition in the time of Artaxerxes, at least 44 years later. The opposition lasted in total, for I did do the maths, at least 73 years. Um, Now, we do see later on 
that God's people are eventually vindicated. But this chapter records a rather dark period when work stops, at least on rebuilding the temple, and Israel encounters constant opposition. I just want to talk about the fact that we do face opposition and we do have an enemy. We build in the face of opposition. Uh, Opposition often comes when things seem to be going really well and you're least expecting it. The nature of opposition um, is very often it comes when things are going well. In our own church, we've seen a a period now of, of, of sustained growth for some time, although there's quite a few missing this morning. Um, We had more during the summer, I think. But we've seen great people being added to us, as we just saw with Phil and Jan and others. We've had more baptisms last year than we've had for a number of years. God has been blessing us. But then in the last few months, we've seen a wave of sicknesses, sadness, and difficult situations on a scale that we haven't seen for many years. And we need to remember that God's work, done God's way, will always encounter opposition. Um, So the backdrop, I think, to, to opposition is that it often comes when things are going really well. I spent Friday sailing, or summer Friday sailing, um, and I'm not a particularly competent sailor. I, can, I managed on Friday, actually, to go two and a half hours without capsizing the boat, which is the longest I've ever sailed um, without a capsize. Um, and where I sail, you, or you get quite blustery winds, so you get these sudden gusts. And what will happen is you're sailing along, and you're thinking, boy, I'm doing really well here, um, this is really great. I'm loving it. We're going good speed. The wind's in the sail. Everything's set fair. And then suddenly you'll come along where, where I'd go. There's a gap between a couple of hills. And you'll get to this gap. And suddenly this gust will come belting through. And you risk being tipped over. And you have to make adjustments very quickly. Um, and then, of course, once you get beyond it, if you don't adjust it again, you risk getting tipped over the other way. So you're constantly having to make adjustments. And just when you think you've really got this cracked, you know how you're doing it, all of a sudden, along comes a gust, bam, and you're in the drink. Um, And actually, opposition is a bit like that. We will find that just when we think everything's really great, and we had a leaders' meeting a few months ago where Phil Norris and I think it was John Coombs came along, and we were telling them how well everything was going. Um, and it was great. And we, we were really delighted with what God was doing. And then suddenly the next morning, a massive situation just blew up right in our faces. Um, and it's just when we think that everything is fine, that suddenly opposition will surface, that the devil and his hordes will seek to bring opposition and damage what we're doing. So the tactics of opposition that we often face, we see it here and we see it later in the book of Nehemiah. I'm just going to cover it here. Uh, First of all, the people who first turn up are a bunch of false friends. At the beginning there, it talks about them as the enemies of God's people, doesn't it? If you were listening carefully, it talks about the enemies of God's people saying that 
Um, I should have done the other thing I was going to do. Um, the enemies of God's people pose as fellow worshippers and offer to help. Um, and they were trying to compromise what God was doing through his people. Um, so false friends, people fo- posing as being friends of God can come along and pretend and try and dupe dupus into compromising what we do for God. The second one and the big one is discouragement. Verse 4 then tells us three things that the people around them used to try and stop the work on the temple. The first was discouragement. It's one of the most devastating tactics that is still used by the powers of darkness today. It's probably the one I'm most vulnerable to in my own walk and as a church leader. Um, I'm not going to give you a great long example that I was going to give you there, but just to say discouragement is one of the major tactics that the enemy of our souls will seek to use to stop us from accomplishing what we want, what we're seeking to do in God. The second one is fear. It says they sought to make them afraid to go on building. Fear is also a pretty effective tactic um, that is still used today. For us in the 21st century church, what are the things we can end up fearing? that stop us from doing what God wants to do? Sorry? Failure? Rejection? Ridicule? Who, who what, sorry? Humiliation. Losing our jobs? Being unable to pay the mortgage? Um, any number of things that we can end up fearing. You know, there have been times in my life when I thought, I'll look really stupid if I make a stand over this. Or I could lose, a, lose my job if I call out this dishonesty. Or I'll have no idea how to answer. I could be rejected by my family and friends. They're all examples of fear. But actually, 85% of what we fear never comes to happen. I know most of the things I've feared in my life haven't actually happened. So, fear is the second tactic. I'm just going to talk about the third one. Right, it is, fear is more subtle than discouragement, I think. Third one is frustration. The third disruption tactic was to frustrate their plans. As we read on through Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that they constantly had enemies snapping at their feet. They found themselves fighting bureaucracy, slander, and constant interruptions to their plans and their work. And in our own church world over my time, in in our wider family of churches, we've encountered opposition just about every time we've tried to buy a building or use a building for a particular purpose. Or for that matter, every time we tried to sell a building. Um, uh, There was one occasion last year where someone actually exchanged contracts on a building and didn't even complete the, 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 the sale. So we've seen opposition every time we've tried to do that. We've seen constant financial constraints that we've had to pray through. Um, There were times in recent years when things looked decidedly dicey, but God has always been faithful, usually through his people. And we need to recognize that if we are seeking to serve God, our plans will frequently be frustrated and challenged. I remember very early on, one wise old leader said to me, um, never expect unqualified success. It seemed to me at the time that he was rather lacking faith being the 20-something that I was, but he was right. Um, So, these tactics, so discouragement, fear, 
frustration and false friends was the one I couldn't get. False friends are tactics that we will frequently come across that are designed to frustrate us in doing what God calls us to do. Um, I even had it on my notes here as well. So how do we resist them? I'm just going to cover three very quickly. I might cover these more fully next time. But first of all, prayer. Um, Prayer is important. I have a renewed sense that God is calling us as a church to prayer. Um, We have various forums in which we pray. The monthly prayer meeting, prayer triplets, Sunday mornings from quarter to ten in the room out the back there, as well as various groups who do get together to pray. But as we pray, we will have a stronger sense of what it is that God's called us to be and to do. As we pray, we will learn to draw on God's strength and his encouragement and his grace. And we will have a greater awareness of the prophetic. In case here, what happens is that God sends Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets, who are the ones who, um, I was going to say incite, that's the wrong word, stir up and provoke Israel to finish what they've started in God. I actually think that the putting on of the armour of God is an exercise in prayer, um, rather than an exercise in twee Christian practice. Uh, And then the second one is preparedness. We have to prepare. I, ten years ago now, I spent the summer, I spent six weeks in the summer in a course that the students at Regent called Suicide Greek. Um, It was six weeks of full-time studying Greek in which we did um, a year's worth of Greek in six weeks. I came out of that six-week period able to read my New Testament in Greek. Um, Now, I could have been, I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet here, but I I could have been enjoying the countryside of British Columbia instead. But actually, what I was there for was an exercise in preparing for what God had for me. And part of what I do now, I am able to do because of that six weeks. Um, And then the final one, so preparedness, we can think it's unspiritual to plan. It isn't. As we look through Scripture, we see people preparing for what God has called them to. When the Apostle Paul had his experience on the road to Damascus, he then disappears for several years while he goes away and reworks his theology and his thinking and his understanding of what it means to be a a member of the people of God. And the final one, which I'll cover very quickly, is perseverance. In the face of the constant frustration of their plans, the Israelites in this passage and the chapters that follow didn't give up. They kept on arguing Um, and responding to the challenges that came their way, and they eventually prevailed. When we expect everything to work out perfectly straightforwardly, we are often living in unreality. Um, I'm sorry if that's bad news for anyone, but actually, I have never known unqualified success in anything I've ever done. Um, We will encounter opposition, and we need to learn to persevere through it. I can't think of anyone in the Bible or Christian history for whom there were no obstacles, no frustrations, and no discouragements. There were for Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, and everyone I can think of who sought to advance God's kingdom in the Old Testament. The letters to the Thessalonians, to the Hebrews, the letter of James, and the letters of Peter are all seeking to call discouraged early believers to persevere. So, a whole lot of the New Testament has perseverance as a significant concern. I'm going to leave it there because we've overrun a bit this morning. 
Um, but I will possibly just cover some of that a bit next time before we move on to the next bit. But can I just pray before we finish? Um, I'd also like us just to pray for any of the children over there going to a new school tomorrow.